Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to another episode at the Bitcoin Stoa. For any first-time listeners here today, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoyed listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code at our homepage at bitcoinstoa.com. Or you can stream sats using something like the Breeze app, which has a really badass podcast feature. Uh, I think at the end of the day, the best way to support this project is really just to share the content if you benefited from it with people you know who might be curious about Bitcoin. Uh, current Moscow time is 20.35 at 7.12, 7.30. And with that said, today I'm speaking with a human that goes by the name Frito2x on Twitter and who has kindly offered his time this morning for a conversation. Frito, welcome to the STOA. Oh, thanks, Nick. Thanks for reaching out and, and having me. I appreciate it. No worries, man. It's uh, always a pleasure to speak with people who are Bitcoiners and sort of bridging um, the worlds of Bitcoin and, you know, traditional worlds like medicine in this case. And so maybe to provide a little bit of context um, for today's discussion, let's start with a brief background about yourself. Uh, maybe, you know, like your occupation, what part of the world you're coming to us from, just so that people know where you are and where the context is um, that sort of stimulated the article that you wrote. And we'll get into yeah. that. Um, well, I'm a physician in the uh, financially oppressive state of New York, and uh, I'm a neurologist uh, by training. And uh, I'm also boarded in sleep medicine. So I used to do both. I used to cover a hospital, you know, for like acute neurological issues. I used to have an outpatient neurological clinic and that kind of stopped being uh, um, fruitful because um, the, the complication of those cases are so high and just kind of, it was not really sustainable without being subsidized. And what I mean by that is if you're not working for a hospital or a big group that has other ancillary secondary gains from your cases, then you basically can't make any money. So for the last several years, I've done just sleep medicine. Um, and even that's kind of being an increasing challenge in, in you know, today's uh, uh, medical setup. Um, and so, how would you describe yeah, sleep medicine? <laughs> Out of curiosity, how would you describe uh, sleep medicine? Because I, you know, we work with sleep as one of the pillars of health for the network, the health network I work with, but I'd love to hear your description of sleep medicine out of personal, personal curiosity. Well, I mean, I guess it's the evaluation and management of sleep disorders. And okay. I would guess like 80% of that is sleep apnea. So, you know, a lot of it's just sleep disordered uh, breathing. Um, but um, we do other sleep uh, issues too. I mean, insomnia is one of the most commonly uh, reported uh, problems that people have. Um, we do things like narcolepsy and restless leg syndrome and circadian rhythm disorders. Um, but, but, you know, the bread and butter of it really is uh, diagnosing and managing uh, breathing disorders. Okay. Very interesting. Um, let's dive into your Bitcoin story. I'd love to understand uh, and sort of hear about how and when uh, Bitcoin found you and sort of maybe some significant moments along the journey from that point until where we are today so that people can understand how you got into Bitcoin and, um, yeah, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, I, I told it a little bit before, but it's evolved a little bit. Um, so I graduated from my fellowship um, 2008. And, you know, of course, I didn't have any money and I was in debt. And my wife had just graduated from hers in 2007. So the first thing we did, of course, was buy the most expensive house we could buy. <laughs> and um, so then we still didn't have any money. And two years later, we upgraded that to another expensive house that we couldn't afford. And then we kind of just started like investing. I guess I was in my mid thirties, right? So investing meant, you know, do what other people do and you're throwing some money in IRA and you're uh, starting to buy stocks, right? Cause we all think, well, I don't wanna say we all, but I thought that I was smart at picking stocks. 
And um, I was mostly winning. So I, I, I especially thought I was smart and I didn't realize that I was just riding the, the Cantillon effect and everybody was smart, right? Um, and I'd stumbled on Bitcoin maybe 2013. So I'm like five years into my career then. Um, and if I would have known about hard assets when I started making money in 2008, 2009, that would have been a better time to get into Bitcoin. Um, but I treated it like another, you know, just stock for lack of a better term, uh, another asset. I guess that's how we looked at it. Um, I found out about it through an article by Motley, Fu Motley Fool of all things, which is hilarious because they hate Bitcoin. Um, and it's then, um, yeah, and then in like the late 2013, you know, it was around Thanksgiving time. I started buying into it, it was like $400 or something like that. Um, it was all exciting because it rode up. It rode up like, you know, $600, $800. Um, I thought I was a genius. And then there was, um, uh, you know, there was articles coming out where Peter Schiff was getting upset and it was about to hit one ounce gold parity, even though that's kind of a artificial thing and doesn't matter, but it was exciting. Sure. And then it crashed right before it hit it, right? It crashed until it got below like $200 and I was an idiot, right? And it was just, it was just like a gut punch and I, I couldn't believe how dumb I was. Um, and I was waiting for Bitcoin to get back up to my cost basis, which at the time I think was around $800, just so I could sell it and get rid of it and get rid of this stupid mistake that I made. Sure. And, and fortunately for me, it just failed to do that, right? Bitcoin got in this, this lull for like two years and I forgot about it. And it was around January 1st, 2017, when like I was kind of like out on the whole thing that, that it got back to like $1,000. And that, that's actually the moment that I realized that the thing wasn't going to die. And I, you know, I was, I've been kind of a hardened Bitcoiner since that time again. You know, so then the, the next time it rode up you know, to close to $20,000 and it crashed again, that was a gut punch too, but I, I was still in. And uh, it's kind of turned from an investment to like more of like a, I don't know, uh, having more meaning now because of the events of the last couple of years, where now you've come to realize that it's, it's kind of the only vote that matters. And it's the only thing that really has a chance to change things for the better. And, and it's, it's a, the best way of protecting your freedom, which is becoming an issue that I never really thought of or, or worried about before. Um, so, so as time goes on, um, you know, fortunately, if you have some savings, you can afford to take a little time to become more involved. And I've kind of been more incentivized to become more involved just because I care about it more now. Um, so that's, that's where we are now in 21. That's a really good story and uh, good on you for kind of toughing it out. I know it's a, you know, you, I think the people who get in at the craziest times become the most hardened Bitcoiners if they actually manage to stay in, right? Like it's, you know, the people who get in right at the start before it's like an, on a vertical trajectory. I don't, I don't really think they build the conviction necessary to really be able to weather the tough times. And so, um, you know, it's more painful, but certainly getting in at a rocky place where you're like right at the peak of then a decline, I think forces you to really reassess. Right. And, um, and for, for most people that I've heard from that have done that have gone through it at that point, it's really just like hardened the shit out of their conviction. And they're the people who um, ended up being able to financially benefit from it and gain more freedom. So I think it's like, you know, if you if you harden yourself through the fire, then you get the rewards at the end. And uh, yeah, that's a really good story. And, you know, every time I get asked my Bitcoin story, it kind of morphs slightly, you get better at telling it, you get better at trimming the fat. And so yeah, you did a really good job of chronologically kind of bringing us through that. So Thank you. Um, let's dive in to the legacy medical system because 
So you wrote an awesome article in volume 14 of Citadel 21. It was titled, Can Bitcoin, Can Bitcoin Fix Broken Fiat Medicine? Uh, which I've now read twice and I found it to be very honest and powerful um, as a read and sort of you know, helps me better understand how fiat undermines the practice of effective medicine. Um, and I wanna start with a quote from your article. Um, and it says, quote, scams are defined as fraudulent business schemes. Fiat monetary system is a scam. The legacy medical system is a scam fueled by the base layer of the fiat monetary system. So I agree wholeheartedly with this quote, and I would love for you to unpack sort of your thoughts on how the fiat system enables the scam of the legacy medical system. So go for that wherever you want to take it. I'm, I'm keen to listen. <laughs> well, that's tough without reciting the article. Um, I, I think the scam of it is that on both sides of the equation, and people don't often think of it that way, but for the patient and for the provider, there's just value being sucked out that each side should be receiving. And I think the truth of it is that the system's kind of, um, it's, it's, it's kind of broke on both sides and it's getting worse. So, you know, the patients are having less power to um, demand quality. The providers are having less power to provide quality. And then, so what ends up happening over and over is that the system wants to solve problems by over-regulating things. So the system steps in and says, oh, we're going to do this to solve the problem. But every time they do that, they create another layer of, I would argue most of the time it's middlemen that are just sucking value out. And then that value is not getting to either side of where it should be getting. And that's a scam is that we're having, you know, lower quality um, than we ought to. And I think that's a scam that goes beyond medicine. It's just kind of all over right now because of fiat. Yeah. But, but um, in medicine, it's especially true because medicine's about like the most regulated industry that there is. So like, I have this theory that if you're trying to pick a career right now, you're better off going in a direction of something that's like uh, very uh, lightly regulated as opposed to something that's hyper-regulated. Cause I just think that uh, regulation as a trend is going to decrease quality um, because the regulations are not smarter than the free market. Um, so. And it's so egocentric of people making regulations to think that they can make one simplistic rule um, and think it's going to solve the problem within this complex dynamic system, which is the free market. And it's so, you know, it's like solve one problem, create 10 more, solve 10, those 10 problems, create 10 more. And before you know it, you've created so much crap in the system that you almost lose track of like how to backtrack because there's just so much stuff put in there. And I think it's so silly, like it becomes so obvious, right? Like even the monetary system, they think they can solve the issues of the free market by, by eliminating all pain and making sure that we're never exposed to any um, hard times. Even though like those small hard times that are supposed to come sequentially are what kind of clears things up so that we don't get the massive collapse. And I think you see the same thing applied to like medicine or money or um, school. And it's, yeah, it's so weird. And to me, it seems like, you know, government and pharma um, have completely sort of captured the institution of medicine. And, you know, doctors are sort of these people that are well-intentioned, good players, that are stuck in the middle and caught in a bad game. Does that sort of, does that resonate with you? I think we're mostly well-intentioned. I mean, you know, there's bad apples and, and people will point out that we need insurance companies to rein in people who abuse the system. And it does happen, but the solution just makes things worse. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I, I think that if we 
held doctors accountable in different ways, and maybe we can get into some of that, then, then um, it, it would actually have a chance at improving things. But I think that medicine is a lot more complicated than the money. Like when we talk about money, for me, it, it's easy to say, okay, I, I can think on a different, a few different levels. I, I can think about um, the, the money's broken, it's working against me. Um, why, you know, why is that? Um, the, the they're, they're debasing it so that um, they're stealing my time, you know, so that's kind of like the, the second layer. Um, and I, I, going back to the first layer, maybe it's, a lot of people think the problem is things like racism or sexism or whatever ism you want, but everybody's kind of, I think the, the pressure that everybody's feeling really comes down to the money and most people don't realize that first level thing. And then, and then if you can get beyond that, then you say, okay, um, you know, we need sound money. And then maybe the third layer is Bitcoin is that sound money. And that all, all that stuff like makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about medicine, the problem is that the patients are getting poor service and the providers are less incentivized to give good service. And then um, my second level thinking in the article was just trying to point out like, what are the reasons for that? Like, you know, what, what are the, what's the ideology or cause of it? And then the third level is how do we fix it? And, and in my opinion, that's like a lot more confusing than medicine, than, than the money, right? So um, in the money, it makes sense to say, well, we got to get rid of this fiat system. That's obviously a scam and, and replace it with sound money. And there's only one of those. So that's the third level thinking. But, but in medicine, it's, it's so complicated. And, and I was making an attempt in the article to say why it was complicated. But, but um, it's so much harder to fix that, I think. And, and um, you know, I think it's going to be a long fight if we are to fix it. Yeah. And I think you did a good job at really segmenting the different sort of layers, as you say, in the article, because, you know, when you get into the, into the weeds and the mechanics of how to sort of like on sort of unwind all these crazy things that we've put in place, um, the reality is it's complicated, right? And there's no way to kind of like, you can eliminate a lot of the details and simplify it, but by eliminating the details, you kind of get rid of the, the true, like the small issues that combine to create the big issue. And, you know, I love the Charlie Munger quote of show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome. And, you know, the, as you say, the incentive is for providers to provide less time to give less time to patients and to essentially treat symptoms without addressing the root cause, because you don't have enough time to address the root cause. And, you know, if, if those are the incentives, it's the perfect way to make everyone sick. And, mm-hmm. you know, unwinding that is, is more than just, okay, let's change the incentives because the incentives have become so deeply ingrained and part of the mechanics of how this whole beast works. Um, and you can't just like stop the whole thing and rebuild it. Um, yeah. It just doesn't work that way. But I think there is, you know, at the end of um, after a couple of points towards the end, I'd love to do a thought experiment and just say like, you know, you have free reign to think with as much creativity as you want how do we build at a, like at a high level? What does the new system look like that actually works? Um, but one thing I'd like to talk about is crony, crony medicine and rent seeking, because I think a lot of people, uh, especially if you're in Bitcoin, you start to hear the word rent seeking and crony capitalism or, or cronyism in medicine. I, I think people hear that word, but I want to start with two definitions. And then I want, uh, I'd love to hear your take on how crony cronyism in medicine and rent seeking in medicine sort of gets us creates perverse incentives. So cronyism is the appointment of friends and associates to positions of authority without proper regard to their qualifications. 
And rent seeking is seeking to increase one share of the existing wealth without creating new wealth. So essentially someone's extracting money from society without contributing real value. Um, I had heard those two words, but I think defining them made them make a lot more sense to me. And I'd love to hear you speak about how cronyism and rent seeking show up in medicine um, and sort of, you know, what allows for those two things to be so prominent in the institution of medicine? Um, well, I think we try to solve problems by, I don't know, having the appearance of doing something. And then people take advantage of that and start creating programs and positions that, that don't necessarily need to be there. So, I mean, we pay the politicians to dictate how we should do things. And then uh, you've got the pharmaceutical boards and they're kind of setting their own prices. And I don't know, they're, they're kind of saying whatever they want to say. Um, and, and maybe that's the side of things that wants you to be sick. But then on the other side, you've got the insurance companies. And I think they're just a big, as big a problem. They actually don't want you to be sick. They want you to be healthy so they can spend less money. So, so it's not about just making you sick. There, there's, side, there's people on, on both sides of that equation. Um, and, and the insurance companies are overly complicated and they pay doctors to call me up and tell me why I can't do what I want to do with the patients. Um, and and the, the executives on the insurance companies make way more money than any of the doctors do, right? So, so you got this, just this middleman that's siphoning most of the value off the system and they're just shuffling the money around so that you know they're, they're preventing these disasters, but most of the value is getting sucked away and everybody's quality is worse and nobody really knows it. Um, at the hospital, you've got the CEO of the hospital and all the managers and all the quality control people and all the organizations and OSHA that come in and um, they're all taking a cut too. Um, I mean, just to like give you an example, like when, when people donate blood, they're like, well, we're out of blood. As a, as a human being, you're not allowed to sell your blood. And, and when, when you go and you donate your blood, then the lab's taking a cut to, to uh, draw it. And the, the, the lab's also taking a cut to test it. Then the hospital's taking a cut to transport it, administer it, right? And, and, and the person who actually made the blood doesn't make any money, right? Because all the middle matter takes sucking all the value out of both sides of the equation. Um, um, and then, I don't know, I mean, there's, for example, they reward contracts to uh, EMRs, uh, electronic medical records, and you have to be certified. So how does a how does a IT company go about making their product certified over another company? Um, and I've used these these bloated um, programs. They're just crap, and they they actually slow things down. We're in a digital age, and it takes me longer to make a chart than I was just handwriting it. You know, um, there's there's just a ton of um, examples of it right down to like lawyers that you know have to check every contract um, the right now with, with covid you know there's people chasing after you saying show me your documents you know and those people are getting paid there's just so many levels so many layers of it yeah so many i mean it's really just rent seeking right it's people all sticking their straws in your milkshake so by the time you go to take a sip there's nothing left and what's left is like the bottom of the barrel and the crazy part that I think people don't realize is, okay, if you're, if I'm a patient and I'm not aware of like how this whole structure works and I get terrible care, it's very easy to blame the doctor. Um, and on the other side, 
it's the doctor is just doing the best they can under the circumstances. They're stuck in this shitty game where everyone's taking a piece and the doctor's getting screwed. So they have to look out for their own well-being by giving less time to the patient. And oftentimes they get pissed because the patient's talking shit about their service, but it's not, that's not, it's the, but they don't actually understand where the problem lies, which is all these little, you know, leeches in the middle that are, that are pretending to do a good job and protect the doc, do, do a good service for the doctors and the patients, and yet are providing zero benefit, extracting value. Um, and, and, you know, it's like a, it becomes a very messy problem, um, where it's easy to just throw blame around, but I think actually dissecting all the different layers, um, allows you to see how much crap there really has, is in the system. Like your example of donating blood, I, that, that I've never thought of that, but it's so crazy to see how many people are taking a little slice. Um, and I'm not saying that some of those parties aren't necessary, but also it's like, let's be honest with ourselves of that money has to come from somewhere. So where does it come from? Um, well, we should never have a shortage of things like blood and organs, but we're relying on people to donate them and then everybody else gets to take a cut. Right. <laughs> so goofy. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. And even just like, I mean, I live in Canada, so I don't see as much of the layers in terms of like health insurance, health administrators, you know, and I'm not saying Canada has a better system. It's like, it's not like we don't pay for health. We just, it's included in the taxes we pay. Um, we still pay. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe because there's less administrators and middlemen, um, then maybe it's more efficient. But I also feel like we have this weird thing where from people I talk to in the United States, there's such an overt focus on uh, efficiency, right? Like doing more with less. But if you optimize efficiency without ever even like honestly assessing effectiveness, you're basically getting better at doing the same shitty thing um, without actually assessing, like, are we actually doing something that is generating value and benefit for this system? And I think it's so weird how we get into that slump of like, it's all about efficiency because we don't have as many dollars and we got to stretch them, but it's like, well, maybe we're not doing the completely wrong thing. And until we admit that, it's like, I don't think anything is going to get better. Yeah. I think you hit it on the head, not just in medicine, but everywhere, like everywhere is supposed to be trying to yeah. do more with less, but yeah. that's the lie of the whole thing is that we don't have less. We have technological abundance, right? Going back to the Jeff Booth stuff. Yeah. So like, we should all have more, we should all be relatively more wealthy by the day. And, and the people stealing value from the system, and a lot of it's just down to the base layer of money, are making us think that we need to do more with less. Right. Yeah. You know, we're just shuffling things around, acting like we're doing something like, you know, uh, virtuous. Yeah. And then we're all just getting pissed at each other and screwing ourselves over and getting unhealthy. And yeah. Like, for example, in my field, I test people for sleep apnea. And um, when I went through training, we would have people come in and do a sleepover in the sleep lab. and we're looking at all these parameters and it's not an, it's not an amazing thing, but we're looking at the brain waves and the heart rate and the breathing and limb movements. And we know what position you're in, what stage of sleep you're in. Um, just whether you're awake or you're asleep. Um, and, 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 and over the last maybe seven years or so, because we're broke now, I would say 70% of the insurance companies will say, well, we're not going to pay for that. We're going to have you do this home monitor. So you, you, we have the patient bring a belt home, it's got a little box on the front and it looks at their oxygen airflow and they sleep with it at home and they bring it back. And this stupid thing doesn't know what position you're in. If you're awake or you're asleep, what stage of sleep you're in. It doesn't characterize the breathing events. Well, it doesn't know if you're moving your legs around too much in your sleep. And there's just all this data that's lacking. 
but but we're telling we're selling it as if it's the same thing. But somehow with technological advancement, we're giving people a worse product. Right. And it's just um, it's just because we can't afford to because we're accepting that we have less. Yeah, and I think there's also something to be said about the fact that it seems like on this quest for efficiency, we've narrowed our lens more and more and more. So we're essentially looking at the problem without looking at the the context and kind of losing sight of the fact that, well, like there's a lot of things that contribute to poor sleep that are external to simply doing an assessment and treating the actual thing. Right. And I think it gets to this point where like, we actually don't teach health, like no one understands health. Um, and you know, as a, I went, through training to become a physical therapist, I learned nothing about health. I learned how to diagnose and treat symptoms of musculoskeletal disease. Nothing of that has to do with health, which was a very painful realization to have after I spent all the money and got the paper that said I was good at the thing. And turns out the thing I thought I was getting good at is something I was taught nothing about. In fact, by going through school, I compromised my health and it was like super weird. But I think I think it's helpful to define, I'd love to hear your definition of health, which, you know, health is incredibly subjective. Um, so it should be. But I also think there's some fundamental principles with health that we should all sort of align with. But how do you define health and how do you define medicine? Because I think the distinction between those two um, is something I've often posted about. Like I shit post a lot about medicine on our Instagram account, never about doctors. And I always put that disclaimer where like, you know, I really try and get across the fact that like, until we honestly evaluate some of the issues that are causing the health problem, you know, the legacy medicine system could be our biggest obstacle to health until it changes, which sounds super weird. Um, and I think people often conflate medicine and health and certainly medicine should be on team health. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your definition of health and definition of medicine. It's, you know, I'm not going to quote you on it, but it's, I'm always curious to hear it. That's tough, man. Um, I don't know. I, I guess what I would think of is when people talk about health, it may be some personal responsibility of how to take care of yourself. Um, That's a great definition. That's actually um, mine. <laughs> and I think that the money is a part of that, right? You were mentioning they don't teach health, but they also don't teach money and they sure. kind of go together. And I heard you talk about how it was one of your peers of health before. Um, but um, so, I mean, we could all probably be doing a better job of, uh, the simple things, right? Um, nutrition yeah. and exercise and uh, avoiding bad habits, um, reducing stress. I think for me personally, and maybe for a lot of people, the thing that I, I, a lot of people gonna, are going to say, well, this is just an excuse. But, but I think that just being on this hamster wheel of, of working harder and receiving less, so you need to just keep working harder is probably yeah. the biggest detriment to health. Like if I really had a nine to five job and I didn't take any of it home after that, then I'd probably be more healthy. Um, Significantly part more of that, healthy. Yeah, uh, part of that is like, what do what do Bitcoiners do after work? We, we go home and we watch podcasts and we read about financial health and that's that's a part of it too. Um, but, um, and then medicine, I guess, my, I guess I would view that as the professional, um, I don't know, uh, the, the profession of trying to address problems. <laughs> See, there, there, I did it, right? Um, um, where, where maybe one needs extra help beyond what they can do for themselves. Um, I guess a part of that should definitely be preventative. Um, the system doesn't pay for that right now. Right now, if you want to go to an integrative medicine doctor or a nutritionist, um, you got to pay out of pocket for it. Um, but like, like in my article, I, I would argue that people should be considering paying out of pocket for stuff more. 
and not just yeah. being dictated to what they can, can and can't do. Um, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, I loved your definition of health and that really resonates with mine. It's like the process of reclaiming responsibility for our well-being, you know, mental, physical, spiritual, all the above. Um, but I think if you go even like as simple as possible, um, this is a limiting, this is a low bar, but I think it's part of health is like the absence of disease, right? Like there's a, there's a dichotomy there where if you're the healthier you are, the less likely you are to have a disease or face disease, you still face issues and injuries and struggles, but disease as like an, a final end state of ignoring a lot of the lessons along the way. Um, if health is the absence of disease, you know, I look at medicine as the diagnosis of disease and the treatment of disease. And, you know, it's like, the definition that I think was originally for medicine is the diagnosis and treatment, treatment and prevention of disease. I think that is like a beautiful definition. And I never, anytime I criticize medicine, I never negate the importance and requirement for medicine. Like modern medicine is a beautiful thing, right? If I snap my arm, I'm very grateful that medicine exists. If I have a serious problem that I can't solve, um, and a doctor is able to explain to me that problem and how to solve it. I'm very grateful for medicine, but I think the definition of medicine has sort of been morphed over time to be the diagnosis of disease and the treatment of disease symptoms. And there, there's kind of a big problem there, right? Cause we're not, we've stopped the prevention side. And I don't think it's anything to do with the people who are going into medicine. It has everything to do with the institution of medicine and maybe some perverse incentives. Um, but yeah, I really, it's such a big thing. If we never learn, you know, I have this sort of thesis that I'm working on sharpening up, trying to simplify, like, okay, if the, the, the argument is essentially fiat unsound money creates the health problem, sound money solves the health problem. And I think that one of the parts of that is like, if we never learn about health and we have societal incentives that nudge us towards a disease centric society, whether that's on purpose or not. I don't think it's on purpose. Um, then our default is disease because we're not even ever taught about health. And, and in the, in the definition of health, I would also include financial literacy because I think it's a big part of health. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm just going to spell it out real quick. Cause I, I have to put this out there to the world, to smart people so that it can be criticized and sort of molded. But the fundamental argument is that unsound money, AKA fiat is the root cause of the health problem. Sound money, aka Bitcoin is the solution to the health problem. I think a notable point to mention that's important is that the health problem is fundamentally an education problem. And the three prominent co problems caused by fiat are number one, perverse incentives, which create an environment that nudges us towards disease. So perverse incentives, number one, number two, corruption of the education system end to end, like kindergarten to medical school, such that health is not taught. And then the third one is time theft. And if Bitcoin Bitcoin essentially fixes the health problem by solving those three problems. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So perverse incentives, corruption of the education system and time theft. And I, I really think that the biggest one people don't understand is corruption of the education system in as much as we never learn health. Therefore, we cannot take care of ourselves because we have never simply been taught how to take care of ourselves. And I think that's the biggest one that is like the most important one, the biggest opportunity. Uh, and the one that actually really helps to solve, um, the, the, the medicine issue, because medicine is essentially given this bag of this disaster and said, you have limited money, fix this shit. It's your job. And it's like, that's not fair, you know? And so, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. People, I don't think people realize how rapidly that's getting worse. And when I say people, I mean, a lot of other doctors too, when I talk to sure. them, they're clueless, but, um, um, I, 
completely agree with your thesis. I mean, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, education, I don't know. Um, I feel like in my daughter's middle school, they're making an attempt to teach them some health things. The money's definitely left out of it. I think that's very purposeful. Um, but I don't think I don't think they focused enough on it. And I, I think that um, there's interests that have infiltrated there. For example, I think a lot of these um, fake protein products are, are probably really less healthy than 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 just regular natural food. Um, right. And I think that there's you know, propaganda going on that are telling people, oh, you should eat this other thing. It's, it's better for the environment and it's just as good. And I think, I think that does go on at an educational level. Um, as far as, you know, preventative medicine, the things that are killing people, the, the time theft is, is where people just aren't, you know, being able to put time into themselves. Um, the, the nutrition is, 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 that's another fiat driven thing where, where people's nutrition is getting worse somehow. Um, and, and what you see with decreasing health and decreasing um, time is just people are, are just, um, they're stressed out. And, and I think the stress is causing bad habits kind of across the board and people are giving up. I think you see a lot of people just giving up. Um, yeah. and, and so- And I don't blame I them, to be honest. All this. I'm like sorry? It's, I, don't, I don't completely blame them, right? If you constantly are tr striving towards something and you're hitting a wall nonstop, at some point, your energy just gets so depleted that you're like, clearly, I can't do this. It's impossible. And I think mm -hmm. so many times we've sort of overcomplicated this notion of health such that people are like, I have no hope of understanding this because I've tried. I've tried this diet. Or I've tried this thing. And I, yeah. I, I just think we haven't talked about the actual principles of health, which are amazingly simple, which is mostly like if there's a problem learn what you're doing to create the problem because the body's a self-healing, self-organizing system. And so it's less about doing more and more about learning how to do less, learning how to remove the cause. And I think mm -hmm. the time theft part is a really sinister one because you actually, if you're constantly stealing people's time, they're running faster to stay in the same spot. They don't actually have any time to number one, understand how to take care of themselves, like actually like look things up and, and be resourceful to kind of like find the information which is in this mess of the web, which is totally, it's like a giant dumpster fire now. But number two, they don't have time to like integrate the knowledge that they do get to actually make changes, right? And I think that is the really messed up part, um, I think of this whole thing. And, you know, we, we've taken this five pillar approach with health, with the health network that I work for, where it was movement, sleep, food, mindfulness, and community. Those were our five pillars. And we recently added a six pillar, which I consider actually the keystone pillar in as much as if you don't get this one, right, all the other ones, you can't do much, which is financial literacy, because so long as your time's getting stolen, you will never have time. Health requires time um, and energy and time is our most precious resource. But the crazy thing is that time is only valuable with health. So it's this, it's this very interesting thing. Our most valuable resource is time. Time is only valuable with health health requires time. If your time's being stolen, there's no hope in hell that you can get healthy. And, you know, it's, it's this very weird thing where it's like, when you start connecting all the dots together, you realize this entire system is built on a shitty foundation, which is manifesting an abundance of problems, right? I call mm -hmm. it the layer cake theory of, um, of problems where I look at things as like superficial to deep. It's a hierarchical, um, causation chain, superficial. You have health in the environment, 
then you have education, then you have governance, then you have money. And I spent five years of my life doing as best I could to try and solve the health problem, right? Convince people and help them understand how to take care of themselves. And what I realized is like, I'm doing all that work, but if the fundamental base layer foundation is broken, you actually, it doesn't matter what permutations you do on the superficial level, it will never be fixed until you go to the bottom layer. And so that, you know, I switched over to full-time Bitcoin now because I'm like, I was solving the wrong problem. And by solving money, you actually end up solving the other problems, but it's the sneakiest yeah. one because, and like you said, we never learn about it and it's uncomfortable to admit that maybe that's on purpose, but I, I, I'm finding it hard to, to, to just accept that they're just forgetting about it. Right. I mean, yeah, I think the only real way to make change happen is to focus on the money. Um, and I think in doing so, it's going to be a slow grind. Like I don't see medicine yeah. getting fixed in my career. I really don't. Um, I, that's, you know, I hate to be pessimistic about it, but I mean, it I sounds mean, realistic, not pessimistic. Yeah. So, so spending my time, like talking about fixing the money is probably more, uh, fruitful than spending my time talking about fixing the, the medicine. Um, but, um, yeah, they, they certainly don't want us talking about how important time is. Um, every little fix they make, um, I get like, no lie. I get like 50 or 60 tasks a day in my inbox. That I probably shouldn't have to do right. They, 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 they come in they're like, Oh, well just sign off on this. Um, I don't know, like review this, this referral and make sure it's appropriate for you to see. Um, let's see. Um, what you don't get paid for. I don't get paid for any of it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they added like in the last year, they added about an hour of work to my work day that I don't get paid for. Right. So instead of getting a raise that goes along with this, what, 40% debasement of, of currency, <laughs> I essentially got an hour's worth of, a uh, uh, the opposite. <laughs> um, Oh, and by the way, they, they also decrease the reimbursements every year too, somehow, um, you know, cause, cause the system needs to do less with more or no more with less, ah, screwed that up. But, um, yeah, it's just, it's just frustrating. Um, I've given up a little bit too at work where, um, patients are increasingly unhappy and, you know, my staff is as strange as they can, is, um, they're pushed to the limit of what they can do. And I know right. they're not going to do a better job. Some patient will be like, oh, your staff did this. And I'll be like, yeah, well, I hate to tell you, but it's not going to get better. So I'm sorry, but that's just what it is. And, you know, and I've just kind of resorted to that because I don't, I don't want to get into it. And, you know, I'm not going to call my manager up for every little problem and say, oh, this happened. Right. You know, and it's not like if the patient goes to another place, the service is going to be better. I don't think, I think it's going to be worse at another place. Um, but it's just, it's just where we are. It's sad. And, and people don't realize that that's where we are. You know, that's kind of why I wanted to speak about it. Well, another thing you mentioned in your article is this notion that you're basically like that you're trapped in this system and it's a serious, there's a serious border of walls around you to stop you from ever escaping the system, which is probably increasingly, obviously destroying the care you offer your livelihood. And it's like super, it, it, you know, it made my stomach drop when I was reading that part. Cause I'm like, I, I was, I tried to put myself in your shoes and see from your perspective. And it's like, yeah, there's really, it's hard to find hope of like, okay, I can't get out of this. They've created such a big wall and they have so much power that I'm stuck here. They can do whatever they want to impose more things for me to do without ever compensating me all the while I'm taking shit from patients for what they're doing, but it's impossible for me to explain that because they've made it so complicated and so nuanced that if you talk about how you had an extra hour 
of work added to your day without getting paid for it, the patient doesn't give a shit. They're just like, I just want good care. I just want to feel better. And it's like this giant cloud. And so can you talk about some of the obstacles, you know, for what, you know, someone might say, well, why don't you just get out of that system and um, do free market care and just get paid directly? Like, you know, what would you say to that person um, that clearly doesn't understand the mechanics of this, but maybe like, you know, from a high level, why is it so hard for doctors to escape this trap that they've, that they're stuck in? Okay. Um, well, I, I think a big problem that that's, you know, just rapidly increasing is there's less people that can afford free market care. Like the vast majority of my patients have like no money. Um, and it's that, that hurdle is only going to get worse um, because everybody's not just opting into Bitcoin right now. Um, and for example, everybody needs to have insurance. Um, if you don't have insurance and a disaster hits, that would be bad. So I wouldn't advise people just not to have insurance. Um, and I guess by law, we have to have insurance. Um, so people who pay for a product uh, who are increasingly less wealthy kind of expect to be able to use that insurance. Um, for me, unless I get a critical mass of people that are paying out of pocket, um, that means that I have to supplement with people who do have insurance. And so that means that I need to be enrolled with the insurance carrier so I can take insurance, right? Because unless I'm 100% out of pocket, um, I need to be able to take insurance. Now, if I have, if I'm on contract with the insurance company, be it Medicare or you know, any of these other HMOs, um, and the patient has that insurance, um, I'm obligated to not upcharge them anything out of pocket. Like if, if, if I take Medicare and the patient has Medicare, I'm not allowed to charge the, insur the, the patient extra for anything or they kick me out of Medicare, which I can't afford to do. Right. You know? And part of that is because just to get the referrals, I have to be in Medicare because the primaries are in Medicare and they have this ACO thing where if I'm not in ACO, they can't send the patient to me in the first place. That's just like another layer of the web. So, so unless everybody's so wealthy that I can afford to just see um, out-of-pocket, you know, uh, payers, it's basically impossible. Um, you know, and, and then there's the argument that I understand that say, well, if you're just taking people paying out of pocket, you're only serving people with money and that's bad. So how do we take care of people that are less fortunate? Um, and that's valid. Um, but what turns into is the people with these government insurances, um, um, they, they pay for things, but they kind of have like a, they give you a really hard time about it. So the way it works is if somebody has a, I don't, I don't mean to go off on a side note, but. No, no, this it, is good. I'm in. It, if somebody has um, one of these basic insurances, then they put up these walls and they say, well, um, we're only going to cover very basic care unless the doctor says that you need more because unless, unless you're really bad, right? So if you're bad, we're going to cover X, but if you're really bad, we're going to cover Y. And then the patient comes to see me and I know that Y is better than X. And, and so I'd like to prescribe Y, but I know that the insurance company's probably gonna say no, but in the meantime, I'm gonna be on the phone for an hour, right? So, so I've, gotta, I've gotta tell the, the patient, well, you got X and Y, your insurance company usually doesn't cover Y, but sometimes they will if, if we argue a lot. Um, 
and then then we have to choose and, and I basically do what the patient wants to do at that point. Like I'm not the boss. I'm supposed to help the patient make educated decisions. Right. So then if I prescribe the expensive thing, why? The insurance company says no. And then not only me, but my staff gets tied up, right? My, I have a nurse and she's got to call them and fill out forms. And then they, they send me forms and I fill them out and then it goes back to her and it goes back to the insurance company. And that goes back, no lie, like sometimes 10 times, like just these forms that go back and forth. That's and then insane. they say no. <laughs> and then they say no. And then, then it comes to me and I have a decision to make. I could be like, well, they didn't cover it. Or I can say, okay, ask them to get on the phone with me and uh, I can talk to them, right? And I'm de decreasingly having the ability to be able to do this, but sometimes I'll get on the phone and be like, well, obviously X is bad because like, for example, we'll prescribe a stimulant for somebody with narcolepsy, which is like a wake promoting agent for somebody who's sleepy. And the patient has high blood pressure and anxiety and insomnia um, and, and they have an arrhythmia. So that the stimulant can make all that worse. And then there's another drug that's like 10 times more expensive, but is less likely to worsen all that stuff. And I will clearly say in my note that you need the other drug because it's not going to do these things. And the patient deals with these four comorbidities. The insurance company will still say no, they don't care. Right. And there's, there's no mechanism in place to penalize them for being assholes. So now I've, you know, in that case, I've really got to take my time to argue because it's serious, you know, and then yeah. there's other cases where I just can't be bothered to do it anymore. Um, but this happens every day. And um, I, I think for a more efficient system, I mean, if somebody has a bare bones insurance because we're broke and let's face it, we are, then it should just be clear. We're gonna cover X, Y, and Z and don't make it this dance of, well, if your doctor says you need it, then we could all argue about it. Cause that just drives the inefficiency, right? Now, now when I see everybody else, I'm hurrying through that visit, right? It's just, right. It creates just this garbage environment. Um, but that's how they deal with problems. They just like to slow us down so that we can't prescribe things that cost them money. And I'm just trying to do a job and take care of people, right? Because my responsibilities to the patient. Right. Yeah. It's like a giant misalignment of incentives, right? The insurance company is incentivized to not provide optimal care if that optimal care requires more financial outlay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one thing I, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on is like this idea that no one can afford to pay out of pocket for care. And then if we wind back, it's like, okay, well, in a truly free market, how expensive is care, right? And I think part of that is built on the foundation of how much does it cost to become a doctor? And is that, does that cost generate, um, you know, the high cost of medicine, does that generate some sort of scarcity? And that does that artificially manipulate the price of care? You know, like if a doctor uh, paid half as much for school and there was half as much bullshit in the system, well, would that reduce costs by like 50%? And would the more, um, would that allow pe more people to afford care, right? It's like, how does this fixed cost, high cost of medicine um, become so deeply ingrained? And it's almost like we got to rewind. Well, why does medicine cost so much? Like, why aren't we just getting the smartest people who want to do this job and charging them very little to become doctors? Because if they're, they have a certain level of, um, of motivation and commitment, then it, they shouldn't really have to pay crazy amounts of money and go into a huge amount of debt such that their decisions are made more on monetarily vari monetary variables out of personal survival, like literally. Um, and, you know, like in a truly free market, what is the cost of medicine? It's probably way less than what it is right now. I don't know what it is, but that's probably like where we have to rewind to because I, I feel like that's where it almost starts. What do you, what's your take on that? 
And the short answer on the education being expensive is yes, but I don't think that's where, you know, I think that's a very uh, small portion of where the waste is going. Um, it should be cheaper because information is trending towards being free. Right. And yet, yet it's getting more expensive. Um, could they cut down the time a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I spent 13 years in training. Could that have been done? If, if, I, if I was just steering towards medicine, could that have been done in 10 years? Probably. Uh, most of what you learn is just on the job anyway. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people are getting care from nurse practitioners and uh, physician assistants and, and they do a great job, but it, it really is not the same thing. Um, so I think, I think if you cut down the requirements, I don't think you're going to get somebody who's as trained. And I, I don't think that, that that's great. Um, I think most of the value is getting siphoned out of the system with these regulatory moats. Um, for example, I was in my article, I was talking about how hospitals make more money per procedure than people on, you know, in brick and mortar buildings. And, and that's because it, it, it's crazy. It's accepted that their administrative costs are higher. So therefore they need to make more money. Right. So you so, get so rewarded for of, being shitty at your job. Yes. So, so instead of, instead of, um, uh, I guess being rewarded for being efficient, you get penalized. Um, so, so, so that's another place where they're picking winners, you know, and, and then, um, gosh, where, where else are we siphoning money off of the system? Um, like, um, for example, they make the pharmaceuticals. Um, there's a couple of drugs that I prescribe. They cost thousands of dollars a month. And, they're, and why isn't there a competitor? And really the FDA comes in and they say, well, we're only going to prove certain drugs. If they, if they made it more open, then there'd probably be other people that came in and competed with them. Um, but, but we're limited. So if I'm going to give you, if, if I think that that class of drug is the best for you and there's nothing else in that class, I don't have a choice but to prescribe the $1,000 drug, thousands of dollar drug. Um, let's see, but let's see, I'm trying, I'm sorry. I'm trying to think of like other examples. That's okay. There's just, I mean, there's probably an overwhelm. your brain's probably plugged up with so many examples. It's more <laughs> just like, which ones are worth mentioning? I think the biggest thing is like, when we back to this whole thing of we put in place regulation and we manipulate the system, pretending like we're doing it for the benefit of everyone involved ends up being to the detriment of everyone involved, creates second, third, and fourth order effects that we're not even acknowledging that are making this whole thing much harder to function, are making this thing essentially self-terminating because we're eventually not going to be able to afford things if it keeps going at the same trajectory, right? Like we have all these advancements in modern medicine, and yet we have more disease than ever, and we're sucking more than ever at treating that disease and getting rid of it. So, you know, it's almost like we're constantly throwing darts at a dartboard. We're missing the bullseye every time. And we just double down on continuing to throw darts in the wrong direction instead of actually saying like, well, what are we missing here? What is the, is there something external to medicine that is overwhelming medicine? We're trying to make this thing work, but it's being, it's so, it has so many holes in it because of external variables. It is impossible for this thing to float. Um, and without actually looking to the system level of things, it's like, I don't know if that'll ever get solved. Right. And it's, it's kind of sad to say, but I do think that giving people a broader perspective and helping them understand it might, you know, if everyone is more informed about why this is happening at a high level, um, I think we're better off. It doesn't mean the solution is like easy or simple, but I, at least we can start moving there. A lot of it, I think is the, the, the competition is getting ruined because of like 
people get subsidies. Um, like hospitals will get subsidies. So if you ever go to like a downtown hospital, like the, the waiting room is just like really extravagant. There's like high def, you know, TVs at every seat. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very uh, uh, high class, but it's not because they're giving you good service. It's because they're picked to be the winner in the system. And it actually, if, if you go to that clinic, you're probably not going to really uh, have them do a great job or, or care about you all that much. I, I, I think that there's a, a tendency that when you go to a private clinic, um, they actually care about the business more because they need to compete to, to win, to, to get, to get uh, that business. Um, but when you go yeah, to a picking, private clinic- Picking winners is cronyism. That's like the definition yeah. of cronyism. So when you go to a private clinic, you know, it looks like a shoebox with doors and they're trying. And then you got the place that you know, looks like a spaceship and they're not really trying. They don't care. And I, th I think yeah. that that's a big part of the problem. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like when I go to a restaurant, it's like some of my favorite restaurants are the ones that literally are just good enough to, to not turn people off. They're not focusing on the, like the fanciest restaurants with the best chairs and the nicest things. It's like, usually they give you the least amount of food and the least amount of value. Right. And sometimes not always, but like a lot of times the less people spend on the restaurant itself, maybe the more they're spending on the food. Um, mm -hmm. And it sounds like the same thing in health where, and it's just, it's messed up how it's manipulated such that the winners are picked regardless of their ability to provide effective care. And that manipulation is literally just destroying the, the market of health, right. And the perception of like how things actually are in reality, it creates this like mirage right? That people get sucked into and they don't understand how this comes to be, right? Like the thing people, people's lives running faster on the treadmill, the same spot, stay in the same spot is so overwhelming that people have no bandwidth to actually understand how these things work, right? They just assume like I should be able to go there and get help if I need help. And, you know, it's, it requires so much time and effort to understand this, to even be able to rationalize, oh, that's why it's like that that if your time's getting stolen, you don't have any extra time to take care of yourself, let alone to learn how broken this system is. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, it, it seems like I always come back to time theft as this core thing that just stops us from being able to move forward. Um, and it's super, yeah, frustrating, but also it's like, feels good knowing that at least, okay, I understand what the, what the element is that's causing this. And now we have a solution. It's just going to take time to kind of unfold. You see the same thing at a restaurant. Um, some restaurants you go to and the quality is just getting worse now and it's kind of understandable and getting um, more expensive <laughs> yeah more expensive and where you get um if you're ordering a, uh, like a steak dish sometimes they, they're sneaking steak comes into it now but now imagine that you're going in you know you're going to a, a medical practice and and just just this just the many layers of middlemen that are building up in there are siphoning off that much more valuable value than than just the food chain at the restaurant um so it's happening everywhere, but I think especially in medicine. And, and then in medicine, you've got this, this thought that, um, well, it's medicine, so we have to do something. But every time they do something, it gets worse. Yeah. Yeah, this bias towards action and not just seeing that like sometimes inaction allows you to learn some lessons to then make better choices instead of always assuming we must intervene. It's like this intervention mindset, even with medicine, right? Like this you know, I have friends that come to see me and they're like, oh, my elbow hurts. What, what physio should I go to? I'm like, well, what'd you do? And they're like, oh, nothing. It just started hurting. I'm like, why don't you just wait and see what happens? And most of the time they're like, yeah, my elbow got better. It's like, okay, maybe we should take that approach with some other things where it's like, 
oh, my gut feels terrible. What doctor do I go to? It's like, what are you eating? Oh, you're eating garbage? Stop eating garbage. See what happens. Oh, sure enough, it gets better. So I think this intervention bias really caters to the fact of like money velocity, right? Like intervention bias equals more money being spent. And that's kind of what the fiat system incentivizes. Whereas I think when money, when sound money exists and you're incentivized to save it and not spend it, it allows you to kind of have a more balanced evaluation of like, well, this is going to cost X amount. My, the danger of not doing anything is low. Maybe I'll just try that before I spend money on something. And I think we just need to sort of reassess this bias towards intervention on both a regulatory standpoint and also just like health and everything, knowing that like we have really high tech things, like we are insanely high tech in terms of the, the adaptive capabilities of the human body. And I think we fundamentally underestimate that because it's profitable to do that. Um, yeah, super weird. The fiat system's incentivizing this, um, like just letting go of personal responsibility too. Yeah. It's, uh, that's part of it. Like, you know, you're talking about somebody who might research something and figure out how to take care of themselves, which I think a lot of people do, but not enough. Um, I want to know your thoughts about this single payer system in Canada. Because when you and I were talking about how to fix things, um, well, one way to get rid of a lot of the middlemen is just to decrease the number of insurance companies out there. Um, but my fear is that in my experience, insurance companies um, they don't care about the free market at all, especially the government. And um, they're the ones setting the prices. So, so as it stands now, doctors don't really set their own prices. They just accept what the insurance company gives. So, so my fear is if we go to a single payer system, which would get rid of a lot of the bloat, um, they would set prices in a way that would destroy private clinics. And then all the care would end up being centralized by the people that could afford to give the care, which would be the subsidied like hospitals, mm. right? So you'd, you'd lose all the practices on the periphery and everything would go to the hospital. And then at the hospital, they don't care, yeah. especially with the lack of private off. clinic competition, right? Yeah. So, so I don't know what the right answer is there. Like, I, I like that there's competition that's, that keeps the prices from being too terrible. But at the same time, um, I think that that's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to the physical therapy side of things. Um, and I've been pretty lucky. I always worked in clinics. Like I, when I graduated from school, I did a sports coverage fellowship and I started a clinic where we just drew a hard line in the sand right away and said, we're not going to deal with insurance companies because they, and, and like, this is, we were immensely lucky to be able to even do this. So I'm not saying this is possible. It is possible, but it requires more work for a lot of people. Um, but basically we said, people are going to come in they pay for their service. We give them an invoice. They then give that invoice to their insurance company and they deal with it. And our theory was that that allows us to use our time much better and provide better care, even though the patient is now responsible for some of that. But for the most part, it's like literally they, you know, I live in Ottawa, it's the capital of Canada. It's a huge federal government town. Federal government employees have massive amounts of insurance um, on all realms, including physio. And what you see is this actually this clever way of abusing um, billings. So as a physio, I said, I only do hour appointments. You come see me, you have an hour of my undivided attention, but it's going to cost quite a bit more than what you're going to pay at a, like a McPhysio clinic where they're just running people through super fast. And you get this thing where people would go to another clinic and they would be there for 45 minutes and they pay $75, but only 15 minutes of that time is spent with a physio. 
the rest is spent with the physio assistant, which is basically like someone has a kinesiology degree and they're in there and they're helping people or hooking people up to machines. So really you're getting 15 minutes of a physio's time. If you multiply that over an hour, you're paying $300 an hour. If it's 75 times four, right. And we charge like 145 an hour. So we were cheaper if we looked at time with physio. Um, but we were far more expensive if you looked at it as a, uh, on an, uh, an assessment or appointment basis. And what happened was some people would not come to us right away, um, because we were too expensive, but then, and we didn't take insurance directly, but eventually if you're doing six months of three times a week physio, you're never getting better. You inevitably try and look for an alternative. And our, our mission was like, we want to make you an independent sovereign person with your health. So we're going to see you for, uh, our appointments will be more spaced out. I'll see you once every two weeks. And the goal is for you to never have to come see me again. And eventually word of mouth allowed us to thrive and be booked like two weeks in advance because people just told their friends. And so that was an example of free market pricing based on quality. And that was sort of like untethered from this insurance model, even though insurance was in the back end. Um, and it almost seems like, okay, I think there's a baseline level of care that everyone should have available without, um, without having a financial burden. Right. And that kind of is what it is in Canada. The problem is, is that so many people like there's, they've essentially disallowed a private and public health just like hybrid system to develop, which to me makes a lot of sense because the people who can afford private, go to private, they might get better care. Um, but it actually them getting better care outside of the public system allows more bandwidth for the public system to work with the people who can't afford private care. And as long as everyone, the person with no money, as long as they have baseline access to, to like a standard of care, where it's like, if you have a big problem, you you will get care regardless whether you can afford it or not. Um, to me, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there's, I think being stuck with these models prevents people from creatively thinking of like, what is, if there's no restrictions, what's actually the best way of doing this? Like what, and I want to, I want to talk about the nursing crisis because you mentioned that and I don't know much about it. So I'd love to hear your take on that. But the last thing I'd like to cover is a thought experiment. I'd love to hear from you of like, no constraints. We got to create a new health system. How does this work? What is the role of medicine? And like, what are the big pil foundational pillars in that? But let's cover the nursing crisis first, because I want, you know, you mentioned you wanted to speak about it. I'm not super informed about the issue. Um, but my superficial understanding is that nurses are being prevented from working because they don't submit to accepting an experimental medical procedure. And that's squeezing the medical system and things. And then it's just making the medical system under a deeper and deeper burden. So I'd love to hear just your understanding of it and uh, just learn what the nursing crisis actually means, because I don't think I have a context for it. Yeah, I've got to be a little careful about what I say about that stuff because of certi certifications and things. But um, sure. I, I think that just overall nurses job quality is getting worse. Um, they're, you know, they're, they're having to do more with less. Um, a hospital that I used to work at, I, I know that, you know, they got rid of a lot of like the, uh, the desk nurses. Now the, all the other nurses have to go fill in at the desk and do their job on top of their own jobs. Mm. Um, and then at the hospital, obviously it's chaos. And, you know, they've got, for example, COVID patients there and th those patients actually require more work and, and you know, they're in isolation, there's cleaning involved and there's, there's paperwork involved and there's just more right. stuff. Um, but they don't, they don't have more staff to uh, compensate for that. So they're just their overall job quality and satisfaction and rewards is getting less, you know, I don't think they know it for the most part, but the inflation is making them get paid less. 
Sure. Um, so they're feeling it. And then, and then when they get burdened with other requirements, whatever they are, but especially ones that they don't agree with, it's harder and harder to accept because your, your job quality and your pay are worse. And now they want you to do other things that you don't want to do. So it's getting harder and harder to accept these things. I mean, doctors and nurses have been accepting flu vaccinations for the most part. Um, this is a little bit of a different animal, of course, but, yeah. but um, it's just another thing. That, that's harder to accept when your job kind of is increasingly getting worse. Yeah. Um, On my hospital rotations, because uh, you got to do an acute care rotation in physio, I really had firsthand experience of learning how important nurses are, right? And I think it was when I first got there, I took for granted that everything happened that needed to happen, right? Like if someone had an emergency, someone was helping them. And what I really realized is that when uh, we had an issue with nurses not being available, it's like, you don't appreciate what you have until it's gone. Then you're like, oh my God, this is essential. I learned really early to make good friends with nurses. Cause if I pulled out someone's catheter by going for a walk or doing something like that, I had to have good friends. And so I would go out of my way to make sure I did everything I could to cater and help nurses because I knew that they were the, like one of the core ingredients that actually made this whole machine work. And, you know, this notion that not only are nurses being paid less to do the same amount because their money's getting their, their time's being stolen through money and money creation, they're getting paid less and they're being told they have to do more without getting a raise. And like, you know, at, at a certain point when you're getting squeezed harder and harder and harder, eventually you just say, I'm done. I literally the, the side effects of on my health and the opportunity cost of continuing to do this job when I can take a job that maybe pays less, but has insanely lower levels of stress. Um, is, is that, that incentivizes me to not become a nurse anymore. And I, I know a nurse that used to be, she used to be a nurse. Ironically enough, she learned about sleep by reading this uh, book by Matthew Walker on an overnight shift. And within a week she quit. She's like, I'm literally destroying my health by being a nurse and I'm not actually helping people get healthy. I'm simply enabling them to continue doing crappy habits. Cause I don't have the time to actually speak to people. And, you know, so I've seen it firsthand with someone I know. And I, I think if that is allowed to continue along the curve, um, it's, it's going to really crush the system of caring for people who are diseased before we can have a chance to help them not be diseased in the first place. And it's kind of scary, actually. Did that person go to nursing school? Yes. Um, so they just did that for a week and then they kind of just sacrificed that time that they invested? Well, I think it had been a buildup where she, so she did our health protocol with the Foot Collective, which is like a year long process to learn about health. And I think that kind of build up, I think that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. I think she was slowly realizing like, I can do more. She also did personal training and massage on the side. And what she was finding is that I can help people way more doing personal training and talking to them, sharing what I know about food and helping them, uh, you know, open up tissues to prevent tears in, in ligaments than I can with nursing. Nursing is allowing me to have less capacity to do the things I'm actually doing that help people. And I think her learning about sleep and all the, I mean, Matthew Walker's book is pretty intense in terms of saying like, these are the consequences of not sleeping and her being in a job that required her to essentially destroy her sleep routines. That was like the last straw. So I don't think it was like on a whim. It had been building up, but I think it was just so many things where she's like, I can do more for people and have and compromise less on my health by not being a nurse than by being a nurse. She went in to become a nurse to help people. And she had the uncomfortable realization I had where it's like, that's actually not the best way to help people because I'm not allowed to help people. And I'm so under the gun that it's, even if I wanted to help people and I was allowed, I don't have any bandwidth in this current employment to actually do any of that. 
Um, yeah, good question though. She had multiple skill sets then. Most yes. of us doctors don't. Most of us, we just did the one thing right. for a long <laughs> right. time and we're stuck. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I just think that that's a increasingly frustrating place to be for them. Yeah. And, and they do a lot of good. I don't know if you ever watch Scrubs, but, but like what you were saying is so true. You, you learn really quick to befriend them. Um, and in scrubs that the residents come in they're kind of jerks to the nurses and the nurses just kind of like destroy them and they're like oh I, I better be your friend and that's yeah, really put them in their place happen. a little bit <laughs> yeah. um, but but I hope that things calm down for them and their job quality yeah. improves it's just that fiat is is making a trend in the other way yeah I see a huge outlet to educate health professionals in all realms um, about the money problem and it's like the obstacle is actually getting them over the hurdle of deciding to invest their, they have so little time, right? Like everyone is just trying to not drown. It's really hard to recommend they dive into this like whole world of understanding money. Cause number one, it's intimidating. Number two, it's convenient to admit that it's not broken. Um, but number three, it's like, no one has extra bandwidth right now. And so, but mm -hmm. once they get over that hump, I think the most powerful perspective is, is coming from, you know, a nurse who understands Bitcoin, and understands how sound money affects her life can then talk to other nurses and basically relate to the problem set that they face firsthand. And so I think the, I think just the people working in health, understanding how they can, now they have, a, now they have a shield to protect their time, I think starts to swing the pendulum in the right direction where they can at least make a conversation of it or make it relevant. Um, and all of our health depends on that, right? All of our health depends on the health of the people taking care of us. <laughs> And so that's like the, it's just crazy how the people who are in charge of taking care of us, um, are being forced to compromise their own health. And that is so twisted and such a really like disturbing problem. Um, and yeah, I think it's, you I think know, I think increasing bandwidth is purposeful though. I, I, yeah. I think they don't want us to really learn what's going on. Cause that would be bad. Yes. And that's like built into the fiat treadmill, right? It's like, don't give anyone any time. And if they start to have time, create a, a disaster that takes away that time again. Mm -hmm. um, and it is pretty sinister. But the, the, the thing that gives me hope is like the truth wins in the end. The timeline it takes for truth to overcome all the bullshit is up for debate. And unfortunately, I think it'll be way longer than both you and I probably feel it should be. But in the end, it's really hard to contain truth, right? You can isolate us from each other so we can't have conversations, but you can't do it forever. Um, hope so i mean they're gaslighting us like crazy and dude it's, it's hard to find signal right yeah um and and most i mean you might see it too but most of the smart people around me they're they're focused in the fiat world and you know they're not really interested in the money they don't see it as really a problem and yeah they're, they're focused on the things that the media tells them to be focused on yeah and when you're benefiting from fiat it's a lot easier to not acknowledge the problem and i think mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that yeah. that Croesus article, the yuppie elite. Yeah, kind of, that was a really good one. If you're if you're benefiting, then you should be, you know, less likely to see it. But what's I guess fortunately, people are in a downward spiral, and there's going to be more people who are woke out of need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I always think like you learn about Bitcoin in two ways: curiosity or pain. And there's a mm -hmm. whole lot of people approaching the pain threshold. I think, um, and. You know, like the, the curious people get rewarded and the people who find out through pain earlier get rewarded and the people, you know, it's this beautiful 
macro game theory where the people who are benefiting most from fiat will be the last ones to understand how important sound money is, which means they will pay the most for sound money and they will make everyone else rich. <laughs> so that yeah, makes me like thing. smile. Yeah. Um, totally. Let's do a thought experiment. I love doing these because I, I really feel that in like times of radical, radical times call for radical change. And sometimes these utopian thought experiments don't seem appropriate because it's like, well, that's not reality. But it's like, if the entire thing that as it exists right now collapses, there is room for radical creativity of like, what is the best way of doing this? We're no longer constrained with like, what's a better permutation on this? It's like, what's actually the best way? So as a thought experiment, you, Frito, are selected as one of 21 people. You're called to a summit and you're told we need to build a better health system. And on day one, everyone gets a chance to give their perspective of like, what are the core elements just at like a high level of what a better health system looks like. And I'd love to hear your perspective on like, where does medicine fit into this? Um, without going too much into the granular, what are the elements of a health system and sort of what I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Well, I, I think that for things to really improve in terms of being able to deliver quality both ways, we do need to have more of a free market. We need to let doctors be more entrepreneurs and we need to have patients just have more, be able to vote with their money more. Um, and I think that Bitcoin is the, the best way to uh, approach that. Um, I don't think it gets solved until both parties become relatively more wealthy by being able to store their own wealth. Yeah. Um, I think that a single payer system to get rid of the bloat makes sense, but I'm not actually in favor of it because I think it would destroy everything as it stands right now. What do you mean um, by single payer system? Um, well, I guess a, a government-run insurance plan, because because okay. people need basic insurance, and especially you know, especially people who can't afford it. We need we need we need a safety net. Yep. But but our safety net's inefficient right now, um, and I don't trust the government to run it, which is why I'm not in favor of it. Like it's almost like talking about you know capitalism versus communism. Like communism is the utopian ideal that that on paper works, but doesn't really work in real life. I, I you know, and, and you know more about that than I do, but that's kind of how I've, I've always viewed the single payer system idea. Um, but I just think there needs to be more competition. Um, there needs to be less opportunity to reward cronies. I think that fiat um, allows for that a lot because you know people are getting subsidized. So a hospital will win a contract because you know they were just selected to to build a new wing or something like that. So they just get money, yeah. and that's wrong because you know it just it just uh, destroys competition. Um, it, we, we need to stop trying to solve problems by paying people to make sure that you're solving the problem. Um, and, and I think from an insurance level, one thing I would recommend is getting rid of um, the, the habit that people get insurance through their employer. Um, I think that that hurts competition. And um, like if you go to a small employer, um, you know, like a company like mine, you might have one or two choices that you can pick from, but you don't really get like the um, the full full menu of different kinds of insurance. Not that people even look at their insurance all that much to pick from, but they should. Um, and if you, uh, it, it, you'd be silly to not pick one of those one or two insurances because it's subsidized. Your employer is paying a part of it. Right. So it would be more expensive for you to go on the free market. But But I think if we made it, just more regular to have free market insurance options that would force insurance companies to be more responsible on their ends and um, let the market dictate what people want more. Um, but right now people have no idea what they have and they just kind of take what they can get and it's just kind of a mess. And 
all around everybody's covered differently. Um, let's see. Um, I was talking about money. Um, right now, like they need to take away the system where the doctor can advocate for you if, if he thinks you really need it. I mean, he wouldn't have ordered the thing in the first place if he didn't think you really needed it. So I think it should just be more clear that something's covered or it's not covered. You know, you have the bare bones insurance or you don't, that, that, that needs to be made more clear. And I, I think that drives a lot of inefficiency in the system. Um, one thing I think you had mentioned is our reputation system's kind of weird. Um, I've treated tens of thousands of people and on Google, I've got like four reviews and two of them are bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that the, and one of the, my bad reviews was somebody who I saved their life. Like I literally wow. saved this person's life and they gave me a bad review. Cause I guess I didn't save their life good enough, yeah. but right now I, 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 an idea I had was, I think we need to like, uh, make reviews anonymous. Like if you go on eBay and you're buying like a widget, like, you know, basically how good that seller is, but looking at the doctor's review, you can. And, and I think the people, I mean, people don't want, you to know, their business. So if, if I did a good job for you, you're probably not going to go out and say, Hey, I'm so-and-so and she did a good job for me. Right. So, but I think if you made it more of like a requirement or even incentivize patients to leave reviews. Yes. Um, and, and, but you made it an anonymous. I think you get a lot more true uh, reflection of how good that doctor was. And, and you'd be able to compare doctors better. And, and then that would help with, with the free market of just picking your doctor. Um, but right now it's completely useless to go on these, these websites and try to figure out who's good. Yeah. I, you know, to me, a, a better, a true health system, um, I think starts with open sourcing high quality information for the public and really like revisiting kindergarten to, to like the full end to end stack of school and starting to plug health and financial understanding. Like if we have no constraints, teach people about health and money in school end to end, make it fun, make it tangible, make it relevant. I think that alone solves, like would eliminate this Passover of generational disease that we've just kind of normalized because people will actually understand how to take care of themselves. So I think like that's a huge element, you know, at the health network that I work for, we have sort of like three projects we're working on right now. Number one is a health protocol. So right now the new framework that we have is like th one hour a day for 360 days. If you can commit to that, that gives you a good launch pad um, for taking responsibility for your health. And we put in like lessons and we recommend experiments. So like number one is a health protocol. Number two is a protocol for vetting people who can be guides when it comes to health. You know, and I think a health guide could be someone who understands health at a broad level, but has a specialty in medicine or a specialty in physical therapy, like create a, a, a real valid proxy for ability to help others with their health, right? Not because right now my physio degree is essentially a proxy that I'm good at taking tests and I understand how to treat symptoms. It is not a, a proxy for my ability to help people with their health. And I think the last one, which is actually the most key ingredient and probably the hardest one, but the most important one is like a peer to peer marketplace that's online that includes peer validated effectiveness feedback loops, right? Where like, like why? So the game theory of physio, and this is like a prime illustration of how broken things are, is such that I get paid per visit. So I'm incentivized to optimize the number of visits, which means that, you know, if you have an issue and it doesn't go away, you come see me for more visits. So as a, as like a, an underlying mechanism, I'm incentivized to be poor at my job because that's what financially makes me more money. Why don't we align a system where it's like you get paid for being good at what you do? 
So if you have a, if you've helped 500 people and maybe part of your service says like, you know, you get this price, if you do some sort of review to say how the service was, and you get this price, if you don't. And like you said, like nudge people towards leaving some sort of review and create a sense of responsibility, right? Where it's like, the reason we do this is so that we can have an objective, uh, honest sort of environment of people's opinion. Cause number one, we learn from that. If it was bad, we want to know what was bad so we can improve. But number two, if it was good, we want you to say why it was good so that other people can say, oh, those people are good. I'm going to go there preferentially. So you create a marketplace that actually rewards effectiveness, right? Instead of right now, there's a marketplace that rewards ineffectiveness. So I think like something like that, you know, like if Apple or Amazon or Google just took this on and was like, okay, we have the technology to, to open source good quality education. How do we make sure it doesn't get corrupted? Number one. And how do we make it available to everyone? And I, th- I really think that if we like created a new game of health where it was profitable to be good at getting people healthy, right? That old, I think there's, I don't know if this is true or not, but back in the day, apparently I heard that in China, it, the less people came to see you, the more you got paid. The more people came to see you as a doctor, aka mm-hmm. the more issues they had, the less you got paid. And I find that a very interesting paradigm. Yeah, with Medicare right now with that um, capitation system, and their ACOs, but I'm not sure that really leads to better care. I mean, doctors are basically trying not to see you or order things for you. I, I don't mm. know if that's great. Um, yeah, that might not apply in the modern day. <laughs> yeah, um, but you were mentioning these, these chronic patients that keep coming back to see you. I had a couple of thoughts on that. Um, for me, those patients are not profitable because I don't get paid to see people or talk to them. Mm it's like a money loser for me. I get paid when a new patient comes in and I order testing on them. So that's another like incentive problem. Like they should yeah. pay you more to talk to people and take that time and, and less to just order testing. Um, and, and those chronic patients, like I would like them to get better because they're take, they're filling up my schedule. Right. And obviously if they're chronic and they keep coming back to see me, I'm not fixing them. So maybe there should be a rule that you get X amount of visits with a doctor and then you've got to switch doctors and get a fresh perspective on things. Like that would probably be better for that patient because if you're not making them better after 10 visits, you're probably not going to. Um, so I, I think that that would be something that the system might uh, implement that would actually fix things is to make patients change doctors if they're not better after X visits. Um, yeah, I think that, I think it's part of that is the difference between physio where it's like, this is a treatment plan for a certain injury Whereas I think it's like a different paradigm with medicine, but I completely understand what you're saying. And I, and I agree, like, if it's not working, don't keep doing the same thing, try something different. And I think, you know, people see that quicker with physio where it's like most of physio is actually in Canada is dominated by machine. It's not even physical therapy. It's machine therapy that doesn't actually work. Right. It's like you put a tens machine on or an ultrasound on, which do nothing. And yet we're still taught that in school in 2021, we still learn how to put some magic wand on people that they can't do at home. That does nothing. That is essentially a time eater for consuming some of the time they're in the clinic that a, that a non-physio can administer. Um, but I think for the most part, it's like, yeah, if, if it's not working and they're doing the same thing, you should probably, you know, that's the definition of insanity and it is kind of insane. And, um, you know, like doctors should be rewarded for effectiveness, I think. And this, this whole, and out of curiosity, what would your optimal carrying capacity be for number of patients seen per day? Um, like what, if someone said you can get paid what you get paid right now, 
how many, you get to decide how many patients you see and how much time you spend with each of them. What would be your thoughts on that? Well, right now I see like 20 to 25 people a day. Okay. And I think the amount that's ideal varies depending on how much red tape bureaucracy there is. Like if you got rid of a lot of the stuff that I shouldn't have to be doing, like that'd be fine. Hmm. But in today's system where I have to do like all this paperwork and BS, I'd do a better job if I saw 15 patients a day, right? Then I'd be able to really better pay attention to people. But it just depends on what game you're playing, really. Right. That's a good um, point. And how has like, that changed? Like that number in the past five years, for example, have you seen a, like a, an obvious change in that increasing over time? Like how, how drastic has the change been? Um, over the last five years, I'm seeing about the same number of patients, but I'm making less money. I see. And if I had the capacity to increase it to try to, you know, stay in place, I would, but I don't. Hmm. So I think in my practice, I see, you know, a, a good amount of patients compared to other people. But, um, and I used to be able to be like, okay, just add on more people, you know, and I, I just, you know, uh, uh, take care of them real quick. But now I can't just take care of more people real quick because the system's slower, which is crazy because technology. But, but I'm kind of, I'm at my, you know, I'm at, I'm at the limit of what I can do right now. Right. Um, so. Yeah. I think technology has such an important role to play in this new, you know, new version of what health and medicine can be. Um, but it seems like technology right now is being like the whole thing you said about EMR is a pain point that I can relate to a shitload because this EMR software that we paid a huge amount to use in the clinic was the worst thing ever, right? Like in an, in, in an age where tools are free and open source that work extremely well, I look at this thing I'm, I'm actually paying huge amounts of money for, and it's ancient and it literally decreases my workflow capacity, but it's the, we've, we paid a shitload of money to use it despite them never evolving it and there always being issues, I have no choice but to use them. And I think there's just like, what is protecting inefficient businesses? And we got to get rid of that. Like, why isn't there a market for actually good EMR software? And like you said, I think it boils down to a lot of the moats of like regulation of being a custodian of medical records and all this kind of crap that really ends up detracting from the overall value being able to be delivered by the system. And is like, it's just an inefficiency that is there because of manipulation, not because that's how it's supposed to be. Um, yeah. Yeah. They're amazingly complex with, you know, their encryption and their HIPAA compliance and controlled yeah. medicine uh, compliance. Um, but there's errors all the time. And it's just, I mean, every time you got to hit a button, like if I have to do a task, it's, I have to hit like 20 different buttons and there's <laughs> lag and I'm waiting for it to go. Yeah. Um, and, and sometimes, I'll get a, you know, I'll get a request. Hey, can you refill this medication? And I have a choice to make. I, I, I can go back and read through my notes and make sure that's what I want to do. And that's going to take me like a few extra minutes <laughs> or, or I could just refill the medicine and even that's slow. Yeah. You know, so more often than not, I'm just kind of saying, okay, and I'm doing it, but it's not entirely safe. You know, I, I should be making sure of everything that I do, but, but there's really no time in the day to do it. Um, yeah, it so, sounds incredibly frustrating when all of these things that don't need to be there prevent you from being able to provide optimal care. And it's, I can just, I can feel frustration in myself trying to think of that. And it's so, it's so, it's very frustrating. Um, 
And I think, you know, I think a lot of the education has to come from people who are, enge- who are seeking to benefit from the system that we have in place. They need to realize how broken it is because I think the bulk of, that's the bulk of people, right? The minority of us are the people working within the system until the people who are engaging and, t- and having a touch point with the system sort of realize this, which is a, a big ask, right? Um, you know, I, I think that the best thing we could do for health and to deburden our system is like start teaching kids in kindergarten how to take care of themselves. Because, you know, at, at a certain point, it's like we have so much disease in the system, we're going to struggle to maintain capacity there. The marginal cost of just updating education to create a new generation coming through that actually understands the fundamentals of how to take care of themselves, which is like you can teach a grade 10 or a grade six kid how to take care of themselves at a basic level. And to be quite frank, like growing food in a garden with your classmates is way funner than doing bullshit, like test stuff that you're never going to use again. And I, I just think like we're hitting a, an inflection point where so many things are just no longer even viable to save. Let's create a new system that makes the old one obsolete. And, you know, it wouldn't be hard for, for example, the government of Canada to launch a pilot program to open community health centers, which are not the government doesn't say how these centers should be run. There's like a transparent council that essentially in a transparent way says, okay, this is the best way to facilitate people learning about health and making it fun and just show how much, how many less dollars each of those people who go through that community center cost in terms of healthcare costs. Like that doesn't seem like a very expensive experiment to do. And the benefit could be massive. Um, and so it really just like the layer cake is like, if money's broken, governance will be broken. Governance determines education. Education determines health. At least we're, we now have money that is fixing the problem. It's just there's a shitload more battles to fight. Yeah. And I fear need, that like it's just going to take a long time. And part of that at a young age is we need to stop normalizing prescribing medicines for everything. Yeah. Um, you know, a kid comes in and they're not paying attention or they're upset or whatever. Probably what they need is more time with their parents. You know, but we can't prescribe time so you see these kids on medicines and then you see a lot of young, healthy people like our age and they're just on like all these medicines. Yeah. Most of it's like stress related. It's just so common for people to be on like, you know, three or four different psychiatric medications. Um, and and if, if that's our plan, it's only going to get worse because everybody's going to get more stressed as the money collapses. Right. Because everybody's lives are gonna get, become, you know, uh, of less quality. Um, so So really, Fiat is causing that problem, I think, more than anything. So fixing the base layer of money will help people have more time to de-stress and take care of themselves. And then we can rely less on medications. I can kind of see both sides of that because you prescribe these controlled drugs and that's like a big uh, epidemic problem where, where people, there's too many opiates out there and stimulants and uh, benzodiazepine, anxiety medicines and hypnotic sleep medicines. There's just too much of this stuff out there. Yeah, um, it's, and a lot of it's just because it's it's too easy to write the prescription. Um, but on the like other time hand, preference almost it's like low time preference, high time preference, yeah. almost yeah, it's interesting. Am I going to talk to you for an hour about your finances? Well, no, I'm really just dis- disincentivized <laughs> to do that in a lot of different levels. Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to prescribe this thing because that's what I have time to do. Yeah, um, yeah. and then I might, uh, you know, from my perspective, if a person comes in and they've got one of these problems, um, and I have the capability of doing that how can I argue like against doing that? Like it's hard because we're treating subjective things. Of course. Um, but 
there's too much of that stuff out there. I mean, they, they probably fix this problem the most by legalizing marijuana, but um, you know, that, that's a whole nother story. Yeah. Um, but, but there's just too many medicines out there. And like you said, probably the best way to address that besides giving people time back is to educate them and say, you know, you should try to avoid medicine unless it's absolutely necessary. Right. Yeah. And I think there's a very important distinction to draw there. It's like, we should try and make people less reliant on medicine, but we shouldn't denigrate the importance of medicine. I think it just has to be recalibrated in terms of what people view as medicine. Cause number one, I think a lot of people view medicine as health. I'm going to see my doctor. So I'm being healthy and, and you know, I often ask like, well, why do you need to go see your doctor? And if it's because you're having all these issues, well, that doesn't really mean you're healthy. And I think people's time, I think culturally we have to change our time preference, right? Because when the patient goes to the doctor, even if the doctor had the time, if the patient's just like, no, 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 I want no pain now. I don't want to put in the work. Then I think we have to really re I think the biggest thing to teach kids is that health is your responsibility. You have this insanely adaptive mechanism, which is your body and your mind, your your whole self. And if something breaks, try and think of what you're doing to break it, not say I need to be fixed by someone external. I think that mindset is like literally, because you don't have to tell people what to do to be healthy. You just have to make sure they understand like the fundamentals. And I think personal responsibility, um, like you said, with your definition of health is such a big part of that. And I, I think the crux is that until we are, are stopping our time from being stolen. It's really hard to actually take personal responsibility because it requires time and energy. And, um, you know, just to close things out. Eh? That's the crisis we're in right now. So people are less and less able to do that. Yes. And we're getting sorry, further away from that. In general, are you hopeful for, you know, like on a day-to-day -day basis, when you view medicine, when you view, view your life as a physician, um, are you hopeful? And, and do you like, What's your mindset like right now, basically? I mean, on the spectrum, I'm probably more pessimistic than hopeful. Um, but I think if people can find ways to improve their own personal lives and situations and health, then you won't need medicine to do such a good job. And, and if, if we can get the problems out of the medical clinics that don't necessarily need to be there, then there'd probably be more time to focus on people that really are sick and um, you know, ha are having a hard time despite doing the right things because that's going to, to happen too. Right. Um, but like in my article, I was saying that, that Bitcoin gives me hope because I think it's the only thing that will allow for people to opt out of this system. I, I think this system is just so bloated and it's, there's no fixing. I don't think there's any fixing this system. So like yep. you were saying, I think it needs to just be blown up and start, you know, uh, started fresh again. Um, but are there people out there that see the problem that are going to be willing to, to do that? I, I don't, I don't think we're close to that right now. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it, it gives me, if Bitcoin wasn't here, I would, I don't know what my mindset would be. I would probably just exit and be like, it's not worth even trying to do anything. I think Bitcoin gives me hope um, that the health problem can be solved by, by solving the fundamental problem that all the problems are related to. So that, I think that gives me hope. Um, I think it's still, you know, I'm reading or I'm listening to this book right now called The Fourth Turning. Um, and it talks oh, yeah. about how like we're ending this hundred year cycle. And by just understanding it from like an extra zoomed out lens, I, I, by understanding it, it makes me less uncomfortable because it's like, okay, it doesn't make me any happier that we're going into a crisis that's going to suck a huge amount. But knowing that it's like, well, 
this is what actually organically has to, we have to have the giant forest fire and burn everything down, which is going to suck. Um, but when it regrows, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be so much better. Right. And I think Bitcoin is what Bitcoin, I think acts as a shock absorber. Actually, people view Bitcoin as like, Bitcoin's going to take down every, all the institutions. It's like, I think Bitcoin in a better way would act as a shock absorber to at least give people a chance to learn about it before the crisis happens so that we're at least in a better place. And if you were more curious or you were being beaten down more by the current system, you have more pain to incentivize looking into Bitcoin. And I think it's going to help the transition quite a bit, but I mean, I'm hopeful, like just being able to talk to you, um, and have this conversation, like this is the kind of stuff that makes me excited. Um, and I find less and less things to get excited about, but you know, speaking to other people and reading articles like yours and reading all the stuff instead of L21, it's like, that shit gets me excited. Cause I know, you know, like you said, it's hard to find the signal. And when you, when you zone in on the signal and you just focus on that, it like colors your perspective of the world in a much brighter way. So, um, yeah. Anything to say before we kind of wrap it up? I appreciate your time. It's like, you know, to have oh, people. Yeah. And one thing about Bitcoin is they're so generous with their time, right? Like your time is just as valuable as anyone else's. And the fact that you're offering your Sunday morning to have this conversation, I'm like very grateful. I had a really good time and I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, I enjoyed your article in the same issue of Citadel too. Um, that was really cool. Thank you. Um, but um, no, nah, it makes me happy to see people like you. And I really, I really enjoy your, your style here. And um, um, I, 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 learned a lot from talking to you and I, I appreciate your perspective. Um, but like right now going forward for me, I, I feel like my contribution to this whole medicine thing is I just try to kind of lay out where I think the problem is. I think it's gonna be just a grind to, to yeah. quote fix things. And I guess I would define fixing things as just providing better quality to both sides of the equation. But, but I think it's gonna be slow. And, and for me, honestly, I'm more, I'm more focused on trying to advocate for fixing the money than trying to even fix medicine right now. Yeah. Cause I, I don't think that you can fix medicine without fixing the money, but, but um, I, I would, you know, I, I'd enjoy keeping in touch with you and, and sharing our experiences as we go forward through this mess. Yeah. 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 Likewise. And I think it's, you know, back to what you said of identifying the, pro like a problem fully identified is half solved, I think. And I think to me, it's better to identify the wrong problem or the right problem and maybe not have a clear solution than it is to think you're identifying the problem, which isn't the problem, and then put all your time into a solution, right? Like at least mm -hmm. if we identify the problem and like call it like it is with full honesty, we at least have a baseline to be like, okay, how do we move forward from here? Whereas I think it's much easier to say, oh yeah, this is just a problem. Let's fix that. And it's all good because that shit never works. And we waste more resources and more time and, um, yeah, I look forward to keeping in touch. And, you know, if we do another one of these in six months and just share, you know, and I love what you said because it, it resonates deeply in my soul where it's like, it was hard for me to unwind my role as the executive for the health network. But I've, I've, you know, when I started to make that decision, I was like, it's literally a way better use of my time to help educate people about sound money than it is to do anything related to health, because it's just an artifact of the money problem. And, um, I, I find it really cool that that resonates with you as well. Yeah, thank you. Can I, can I say one more thing? I want to throw one more thing in. Yeah, um, sure since thing. I wrote that article, um, one of the organizations I'm in, they made me take a four-hour inclusion course because um, wow. the system thinks that racism is the problem right now right. as far as white people are getting bad medicine. You know, so for four hours, they wanted me to like watch these videos and do this. And I'm, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, dude, 
I'm a minority. <laughs> you're, you're making me do this, <laughs> you know? And like, yeah. they're completely ignoring the money. So the system is a long way away from seeing what you and I see. Yep. And I mean, they're incentivized not to. This is the, you know, the people with all the power are incentivized to not acknowledge the problem and are incentivized to hold their power. I, I remember reading a Foucault book um, about the dynamics of power. And once again, it made me no less comfortable knowing that this is how fucked up things have gotten. But it made me more comfortable seeing that power is in place with the primary objective of maintaining power. And until the people they're governing determine that that power is being wielded unfairly and that, and they realize that we actually have more power as a collective, it's not going to fix itself. But I, you know, I do this post on, on our health network, you know, it's got like 290,000 people on Instagram. I do this post once a month that says, if you can't question it, it's not science, it's propaganda. And I've noticed this significant trend, which made me feel a lot better. I did it this past week. It went from people getting triggered and just getting angry and saying, you know, like you're an extremist, you're anti-vax, whatever. To now people are starting to realize they're like, like all the comments now went from being just crazy mayhem to like more nuanced to now people are like, yes, I agree. Thank you for saying this. So I'm, you know, I'm, that's like my way of getting a pulse on our community with the people that are around me. I'm seeing people start to start to not be able to ignore it anymore. I think that's, it's not like they're coming to some insights. It's like, I can't ignore this shit anymore because it doesn't make sense. So that gives me hope because I think if you innately believe people are smart and want the best for themselves, they might be slow to get to the party because of all the external forces beating them down, but like they get there eventually. And, um, I think the more obvious, all the craziness of clown world is getting the more touch points there are for people to say like, something's not right here. And, um, that gives me hope. So Frito, thank you for being here at the Bitcoin Stoa to everyone listening. We hope uh, you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the project, you can go to bitcoinstoa.com, send some stats to the QR page, or just sh share this with someone you know. If they work in health and you think it would be interesting for them to listen to this, uh, that's how this whole thing gets solved, is if we all just really understand the problem, have conversations, and um, just kind of weather the storm, because the storm's coming, and the more prepared you can be, the more you can understand how to protect your time, the better off you're going to be. So for everyone listening, thanks for being here. Ciao for now. Thanks a lot, Nick. No worries.